Hello, welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor at WBC. It's great to have you with us. We're going to be looking at this bonus episode in our series, looking at the signs that uh, we see in the Gospel of John. On this occasion, we're going right to the very end of that Gospel, and we're looking at John 20. We're going to be reading 18 verses, so not quite as long as last time, but still a good chunk. Uh, And so before we do that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have shown yourself in so many ways to so many people. And we thank you for the ways in which you revealed yourself to those first disciples. We thank you for the lessons they learned from you and the information, the accounts, the testimony that they were able to pass on to us. Give us wisdom in our hearts and openness to as we listen and seek to understand. Amen. Okay, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. We're in John 20, starting at verse 1, and reading down to verse 18. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body, out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stopped and looked and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognise him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who were you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbi, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. So we're at the end of this gospel. Not quite the very end. It's interesting, there's kind of a a, a closing of the story at the end of chapter 20, and then like an epilogue, which kind of works because it starts, the gospel starts with a prologue, doesn't it, in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 1. So 
it, it kind of balances, I suppose, in that way. But this is this is kind of the last chapter of the story before the epilogue then kicks in. It's been a gospel that has all the way through been John's effort at showing us Jesus' identity and giving us evidence to believe that identity and showing how some have believed who Jesus is as he's demonstrated his identity. And then also showing us that some people really have rejected who Jesus is. And they found ways to make that make sense in their own heads. There have been clues and pointers and signposts throughout. And this, I think, is a crucial one. Jesus has just been killed as a result of Roman brutality and Jewish rejection of his identity. It's a kind of betrayal. Jesus was considered dangerous, theologically. And because of that, the Jewish teachers, whose power was undermined, whose understanding of reality was being turned upside down, whose influence was being eroded, they presented uh, Jesus to the Roman authorities as being politically dangerous. There's no indication that Rome thought he was politically dangerous. There's not really any indication that the Jewish leaders felt that he was politically a risk. Not really. But he was painted that way. Now, Pilate himself, this is the Roman governor in Judea at the time, seems to have had significant uncertainties about Jesus' identity and asks him questions uh, in chapter 18, verse 28 to 40. You can see the um, dialogue there between Jesus and Pilate. And Jesus seems to be very calm and Pilate seems to be quite unsettled. John gives us details in his account in uh, chapter 19 of how Jesus died to prove that it was a real death. Now, standards of proof are different now from what they were then. Then testimony was key. So people would say, look, this is what I saw and this is what I'm telling you. So because I was there and I saw it and I can tell you, that counts for something. Now, lots of people can say they saw something and it turns out only part of it is true or something like that. But John gives us testimony. So, for example, chapter 19, 34 to 35, we get this um, extra bits of detail about how the rebels who were being executed on either side of Jesus weren't dead yet. And so the Roman soldiers broke their legs, broke their knees, I think, so that they wouldn't be able to keep themselves upright uh, and would die faster. But Jesus had already died. However, somebody puts a sword in his side and blood and water come out. And that's John's part of John's testimony to what happened so that he can say, look, this is evidence that this death actually took place. Also, across, right across that whole pattern, the whole of that story of the, the uh, arrest, trial and execution, there's a real emphasis on fear. And it's not so much that John says that these people were frightened because of this and these people were frightened because of this. There's a little bit of that. But also you kind of see how fear is prompting people. So um, after the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea goes to the Roman authorities to ask if he can take the body away for burial. But he does this a bit later because he's frightened of the Jewish authorities. Actually, 
He doesn't do that on his own. Nicodemus does that with him. Nicodemus was in chapter three, asking Jesus questions about his identity. Pilate was frightened. He was frightened uh, that the Jewish authorities might be right and this guy might be politically dangerous. He was also frightened about the idea of putting someone to death when he couldn't identify anything that they'd done wrong. And he tries to release Jesus. The Jewish leaders are frightened. They're frightened of the upheaval Jesus is causing, their lack of, um, well, their reducing influence, the fact that he challenges their authority. Uh, and Peter's frightened as well. We see that Peter um, is frightened enough that he denies Jesus. He's also frightened enough that he's not at the foot of the cross. Um, so there's a lot of fear going around uh, in all those, with all those people. And all of that gives context to what's actually happening here with this sign, which is the resurrection of Jesus himself. Mary Magdalene getting there first to the empty tomb is consistent across all four Gospels. There is no arguing with it. Genuinely, she's there first, and which has led to her being referred to as the Apostle to the Apostles, because she's the first one to give them the good news that Jesus is risen. It's also important to be aware that grave robbing was common. Not maybe extremely common. It wasn't every second tomb got robbed, but it happened enough. And that meant that when Jesus' body is missing, Mary's response makes sense. They, they, and she doesn't identify who she's talking about, they have taken the body away. Um, and I don't know where. So Mary's response makes sense, but Jesus leaves behind grave clothes. You might remember from the Lazarus story, Lazarus comes out in his, wrapped in his grave clothes. Jesus has left those grave clothes behind and they're folded as well. Why? Why unwrap? That is possibly the reason why when John looks in the tomb, he believes because he can see that something has happened here that makes no sense for any reason other than Jesus is alive again. It's interesting that John believes there is, a, there is that thing, isn't there, where he writes um, that the disciple believed up to this point, really hadn't understood how all this stuff was supposed to fit together. At this point, it seemed to make some more sense. But even later, Jesus is still explaining how things are supposed to be uh, working and making sense. Again, we're, we're jumping from John to Luke here, but the, the, um, the couple that Jesus meets on the road to Emmaus, uh, he's explaining to them how this makes sense. And, and there is that sense that a lot, of the, a lot of those who follow Jesus couldn't really put this together and they needed Jesus to put it together for them. It's also, I think, crucial to recognise that this gospel, in the way that John puts this sign in here, this gospel doesn't end with death, it ends with life. And it ends with a renewal, and it ends with a victory. It ends with all those fears being crushed. So the context of Jesus' death is surrounded by fear from various people. The context of the resurrection, yes, um, Mary is is really bothered and worried. But ultimately what's happening here is that fear is cleared out and life takes its place. You might have noticed, you might not have done that in verse 17, Jesus, when he gives Mary the message to take to his disciples, uh, he says, go and tell my brothers. And then he says uh, about 
his God and their God, his father and their father. So he, he's connecting with them in a way he's not done before. Maybe that you hadn't picked up on this before. I think I hadn't really quite put the pieces together. Previously in John's gospel, Jesus has referred to his disciples as disciples, as servants and as friends. But this is the first time he calls them brothers. Something from Jesus' point of view is now different. This is the beginning of a new thing. So this is the eighth sign. Certainly for many commentators, this is the eighth sign. And the reason why that they feel that's significant is because it's an eighth sign like an eighth day. And the eighth day is the beginning of a new thing. So you run the week through, like in creation, day one to six, and then the Sabbath, and they, then you have day one again, or day eight. And you're going into something new. Creation is complete. And this is where the fun stuff starts, maybe. This is where things are now how they were supposed to be, or God has realized his purpose. He's, he's turned his purpose into something real. This is where we've got to. So those commentators who like this idea of it being an eighth sign, that's part of what they're going for. The eighth bit is important, the start of a new week, the start of a new creation. And for those who see it that way, there's something else important going on here. And we see We've seen kind of a foretaste of it, kind of it, it, it echoed forward from the uh, lordship that Jesus had over the water when he walked on the water, over chaos and evil and death. And you also see it in the way that Jesus brings sight and light and life as he heals the man born blind and as he raises, Jesus, uh, raises Lazarus from death. So there is a sense in which what's happened here is Jesus has completed a work that overcomes, again, chaos and darkness and instead brings light and life. This is what the resurrection is doing. So it is another echo of creation. And given that John starts his gospel by saying in the beginning was the word Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God, Nothing was made except the things that were made through him. He is, Jesus is, the word is, at the heart of creation. And here he is recreating through his own resurrection. There is light, there is life, and there is order. And God has relaunched everything, not because the previous launch didn't work, not because it wasn't good, but because... Humanity had made space for lots of things that weren't of God. And so this relaunch is needed. And it's a relaunch that means that the life that Jesus brings is shared. And that those who trust him, they can say he's their brother. And he will call them brothers and sisters. They're not just part of a... Of a I don't know, rebranding, they're actually now integrated, woven in to the family of God through his new life, his resurrection life. As this chapter goes on, as it finishes, we get something that we refer to again in the first part. So when we looked at um, 
the wedding at Cana, we had a quick look at what John 1 tells us about setting the scene for the whole of the gospel. And one of the things we referred to was a couple of verses at the end of chapter 20. And it's worth coming back to these again here. So I, I said earlier that it's like you've got a prologue and an epilogue, and then you've got the account of Jesus' life in between. And this is, if you like, um, these verses are at the end of the story and bring it to a conclusion before you get the epilogue. So John writes this, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So in this description, in this sign, something is being brought to a conclusion. And we get this statement of purpose. John has told us about all these signs so that we might understand who Jesus is and believe in him. Understand who he is and believe in him. We just quote from verse 31 again. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. This is what John wants us to get. Not just that he does signs, but the signs tell us something, that we can know his identity, Jesus' identity, and that we can then respond to all of who he is, which includes being risen saviour. John wants us to see that he's provided evidence of who Jesus is and enough of it that we might entrust the whole of our lives, not just the things we think, but the way we live. We trust all of that to who Jesus is and to his care. What kind of God do we learn about here? One who is not stopped by death. Not just isn't stopped, cannot be overcome. Not even cannot be overcome, will triumph and has already triumphed over death. That's the kind of God that we have. And so what? Well, there is plenty of shadow in our lives of death. It's around us all the time. Sometimes it hits us harder than others, but it's always there. How do we respond to the shadow of death that is with us? If God can never be overcome and always triumphs over death. Let's finish it there. I'm going to pray again, and then we're going to have our three questions. Lord, we thank you for the evidence that John has put before us. We thank you for the ways it points to who you are. And we love you. And we say we want to love you more. We want to understand more and more what it is to have you as our brother and to embrace that. And we thank you for walking with us through this series. Amen. Right then. Three questions. Question one. Do you want God's relaunched creation to shape you? If so, what do you want that to mean for you? Let's not forget that Jesus is one who asks us what we want. If we believe that this triumph is real, this triumph over death, how do we want that to make a difference for us, shape us? Question two, 
Jesus identifies himself as your brother. What does that mean to you? And finally, question three. There is this idea that the shadow of death threatens a lot of how we think and feel about the world around us and the people around us. But I'm interested in how you think that that shadow of death threatens the presence of Jesus within you. How, how might it start maybe pushing him away or how might it be difficult to make space for him because of the shadow of death? How does that shadow have an impact on you and what might you do about it? Thank you so much for being with us throughout this series. It's been, for me, a very enjoyable opportunity to grapple with some of John's gospel. There's lots we didn't look at, but the things that we have seen and talked about have been wonderful. So thank you for being part of it. And I look forward to catching up with you soon. God bless.